Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist that ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road. I'm coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Timmerman, Hi, everybody. our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hey, hey, this is where we answer more of your cycling and triathlon related questions that you submit at trainerroadcom slash podcast, or in the different areas where you can find us on the internet. Uh, we have an ask a cycling coach podcast, Facebook group. We have something interesting coming up that we'll also announce along those lines coming soon. Uh, this is basically the spot where you can get all those questions answered. Uh, one quick announcement that we have for this, uh, for this podcast is next week is Interbike here in, in Reno. This mm -hmm. time we don't have to go to Vegas. I think we're all kind of silently or perhaps even vocally cheering. Very yes. Excited for that. About yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Reno's yeah. better than Vegas. Everyone knows that. That's for darn sure. Uh, for those that don't know, it's, it's quite a long ways away. Uh, we're much closer to Lake Tahoe in Northern California. We're farther West than LA. That yes. always blows people's mind. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I just blew Chad's mind. Oh, yeah. No, that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to be here, which will be nice, uh, which also means that our office is here, which means that we should have a live podcast uh, recording party with all of you who are listening to this. You can join us live in person if you're going to be in the region. Uh, plenty of industry folks will be there. Uh, if you know somebody going, uh, please let them know about this. And we'll have a post later in our Facebook podcast group about this. Uh, but also if you are just going to join from afar, you'll be able to join us on a live stream. It'll be later in the evening. Uh, if you're in the region, come to our office, which you'll be able to find that once again, in the Facebook podcast group at 6 30 PM. So the show ends at six that day, the, the interbike trade show. So then you'll just be able to roll right over. We'll have dinner and snacks and everything else and drinks for all of you. And today is September 13, 2018. Yes, exactly. Someone right. asked us to start saying dates. Uh, yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I should have stated I should have stated that. So, uh, and then the podcast itself starts at 7:30, and this is going to be going on next Tuesday, and that's September 18th. So, uh, podcast starts at 7:30. We're going to have a special guest. We haven't gotten confirmation yet. We've been uh, working on a ton of different guests for this one, and, and uh, it's been tricky to line some up. So, uh, but hopefully, we have one nailed down. I think it's going to be a great one. Uh, We'll be able to announce that as soon as that's actually official. So, but once again, uh, come over to trainer road HQ at six 30, uh, podcast starts at seven 30. If you're joining live from afar, then it'll be seven 30 PM Pacific. So, uh, late for some of you on the East coast and especially late and or early if you're across the pond over in Europe, but, um, we're excited for it. It's going to be a good time. Last one was fun with, uh, Cody Kaiser and Courtney McFadden. Uh, so, and they'll be even here racing as well. Uh, you're racing cross Reno right? Yeah. Reno cross, Reno cross, forgive me. All three of us are racing the wheelers and dealers race, but you're doing, I'm sure I call it racing, but yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. Chad, Chad and I are going to pedal hard for a bit and mm. hopefully it goes See how long 30, it lasts. Yeah. 35 plus four five. I'm like two points away from upgrading, I think to Ooh, a three or something so like that. You'll get them on this one then I'm sure. Maybe. I think it depends on how my other fields were submitted. I don't know, but I'm close. This course seems like it'll favor you. It's, it's like, uh, if you took strong the, man's course, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. Big power course. Like yeah. it's not like, uh, last year when they had cross nationals in this region had that really technical section. There's none of that. This is, uh, it's like, uh, it's like cross Vegas was in a lot of ways, but there's no, I don't think there's the crazy steep surges. Yeah. So that helps even more hmm. being a Should bigger guy. jump to why that's not my course, but sure. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just did a cross race this, uh, this past weekend. I did the three, four race. Yep. I won my division nice. out of three people. Yes. 35 <laughs> plus three, four, but yep. we were, we were jumped into the, they called it elite three, fours, yeah, not yeah. elite three, fours, open three, fours is a better way to say it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there was like 12 or 14 people. I got second Jose, who, if you listen to our 
uh, race tactics videos. He's been cleaning up on everything. Yeah, fast um, sprinter. Yeah. yeah, and you look at those on youtube.com slash trainer road. Yep. But he beat me and basically uh, got a couple takeaways. First, um, I got stung by like a wasp or a bee about 20 You're seconds in. You for a long time. I know. I So it's just now going away. You can still kind of see it yeah. on my head. Yeah. But 20 seconds in, it got stuck in my helmet and I got stung. I was in third position. I, I've never started so well. So here's what, how I started well. Hold on. Can okay. we talk about the bee? Because I've always wondered what the heck do I do when a bee gets in my helmet? I've had that before and I've never been right stung. You freak out. You go, guys, you let everyone know. I got stung by a bee. I got stung by a bee. And do, you, you, do you just like, I mean, I mean, do you stop and take your helmet off? Do you, I don't dare put my hand in there because then I think I'll just make the bee angry. Like, like I put my hand in there and try to just flick it away. And then is that when he stung you or did he already, oh, he already stung, stung me? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I mean, at that point, all bets are off. It's, it's a boxing match with the B at that point, but yeah. what have you guys done? I've never. <laughs> no, I just shake my head around and hope that it gets out. I've actually swallowed one. I mean, it's oh. a bee. I, I don't know what it was, but it didn't sting me on the way down. That's so that's impressive. a good thing. <laughs> I think this was like a wasp in our area. There's yeah. not a lot of bees, at least there's wasps everywhere. Yes. Yeah. All over the place. And it was in, it wasn't, it was like kind of under my. My strap. It can be dangerous stuff though, because like, you know, and you had an allergic reaction. I did. Uh, You're pretty swollen for days after. Yeah. My, my wife's like, I thought it was really noticeable. She's like, no one will notice it. And then <laughs> one second in John looking at me, he's like, good gracious. What's wrong with your face? <laughs> that was two yeah. days out, right? Yeah. That was two days yeah. out. Yeah. So I read online that you can, uh, you can have like the anaphylactic shock that you can't like breathe. Yeah. I didn't have that. But actually after the race, my throat felt closed up and like I got really hoarse. Wow. Um, so I don't know. And for what it's worth, he had an EpiPen, but it was at home. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, those things. EpiPens do a lot of good when they're not with you, right? Yeah. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyways. Well, I'm glad you're okay. Yeah. Takeaways. Okay. One for a good start. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my best start that I've had. And what I did differently, this sounds of course, like, of course you would do this is I was actually sitting on the saddle and I had one foot clipped in, which I always do, but usually I'm kind of like in front of my saddle a little bit, but I was sitting and I was like really stretching my other leg so that I was almost upright, like tippy toe pushing Where in, oh, on at the, the start, start. You're saying exactly. Okay. Yeah. And that helped me just be in like a more natural position mm-hmm. to get that really strong first leg push down. Mm-hmm. And then I, my next leg clipped in. Yeah. Uh, two, I'm, I'm, I'm really bad at turns and grass. So although grass should be my thing because it's more power, that's what I'm saying. If there's a lot of turns at this next race, I just need to flow more. What I was doing is I'd, I'd take the turns too wide and I wasn't doing the bike body separation. Mm-hmm. So if you don't do the bike body separation, there's only so much your bike can turn yeah. on tight turns. Yeah. Your bike has to lean over more than your body. Yeah. And, and part of that, and not, not so severe. Like when you stand up, you get a lot of separation and you want to do that because you know, your center of gravity is going up as you stand and everything else. But the, the main reason that I find for bike body separation on a cross bike, especially is to be able to, uh, I guess the, the main thing is you kind of hover almost off the saddle. In other words, not your weight isn't entirely planted because then when you hit those bumps and it disrupts your weight, that disrupts your traction. Well, this is the part yeah. where there's no bumps. It's just about taking a tight turn. But you'd be surprised like very small undulations in what feels like extremely smooth grass. Mm-hmm. It can make a huge difference in your traction. 
And that's, I feel like the biggest thing in terms of, cause I guess the bike body separation thing, I don't disagree with that, but you know, if you're sitting on your saddle, there's some separation, but it's nowhere near what other, you know, you're not leaning you're, the bike over. You're jumping up. to my next point. Okay. Uh, on this point, all my thing is, all my point is when I would, it'd be like a tight turn and I'd end up outside the tape. Yeah. Like my handlebars would get stuck in the tape. Have, because have I, you washed out on the grass? Yeah. <clears throat> the grass just inspires confidence in me. There's so much traction that I, okay. I, I almost I, can't I, lose it. But the way to, to, to turn faster is you, you could also just lean the bike more. Yeah. I'm just not leaning enough too. Like yeah. either way, oh, if it's, if it's me, okay. it's, it's the bike turns, not with your handlebars, right? It's a good, it's a combination of your handlebars and leaning the bike. Yeah. And I'm not doing that enough. That's just the. And poor entry, poor exit. No, I'm in the right entry line. Hmm. Like I just don't lean enough. Um, yeah. considering cause I'm, you know, I'm following these other people and there's after this many races, there's a a line on the on the outside that everyone takes. Something that I think is really helpful for folks before they line up for whatever race they're doing is to do cornering drills that are extremely tight and then do cornering drills that just allow you to carry more speed. Like if you have a big grass area, let give yourself a huge amount of space, pedal up to a very fast speed and then just start turning and then get comfortable with making that turn a little sharper, a little sharper, a little sharper, and then work on doing extremely tight figure eights. And it's, I've noticed then when you get out on the course, it all feels very wide open when you're mm. doing really tight figure eights. And then you, that day, it's kind of like calibrating your power meter. Like you have yourself calibrated to traction and, and all the limits by giving yourself plenty of room to rip one of those big turns. It can be really helpful. Uh, a mistake I did on warm is I didn't take any corners at race pace, at least from the grass. Mm-hmm. I was taking them more at like 80%. Mm. But then as you add that extra speed, it it changes, right? Like, totally, yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing that I saw at Cross Nationals last year is someone uh, someone was just playing around the grass, but this guy was ripping like, you know, Lee McCormick, he'd like go and then he'd kind of cut into the ground mm-hmm. and scallop. do this really, yeah, scallop, that's what he called it. Yep. These really short, hard, like, like rip, that's what you call him, yeah, like ripping yeah, yeah, um, yeah. on a on a mountain bike. This guy was doing the cross race in, on his uh, in grass, and that's kind of like if I can get to that set, that level where you could scallop into it yeah. and come out, that would be amazing. Which you it, you don't necessarily do with a cross bike. Depends on how fast you're going. Yeah, yeah. I don't want people to think that you cutty when you're because cutty is, I guess, the more common term that people use for that. Like. You don't do that, um, on, on the cross bike when you're turning at all. But if I could do it, but the, I bet you I could turn well. Well, yeah, because you'd be more familiar with traction. Yes. But like when, when you're cornering, you don't want to just like place all of your cornering in one second like that, that creates a lot of stress. Now, when you have really knobby tires, big voluminous tires, and you have suspension, that's really easy to do. And you have geometry from a mountain bike. And it's a good skill to have, but on a cross bike, it's much more when they talk about hooking up and coming out of turns like that, it's really just getting your bike leaned over to the point where you're on the side knobs, it's grabbing well, and then you're causing enough flex in the tire so that you're kind of, you know, you're at its limits. So then when you can come out of that Mm -hmm. turn, you feel a bit of a rebound, but it's not quite like a mountain bike. Yeah. 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 And there's no suspension stuff too. Right. I'm just, so basically the point is. You got to lean your bike to turn, yes. to turn sharp. <laughs> yeah. 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 So the other part of the course was, um, it was actually way more technical. It was loose over hard and a ton of sand. Mm-hmm. And I actually shined in that s- section. So happy. Mm, so nice. the, the part that I did better on that based on what Courtney McFadden and Cody Kaiser told us is in the sand sections, um, leaning back, but hovering. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Like on the flat sand mm-hmm. going through, I could plow through them a lot better. Nice. And the other thing they said, which seems obvious now but before I was never looking for the divots that other people had made. Yeah. And if you ride those divots that they make, 
it is so much easier than creating your own divot. Oh, yeah. Like there'll be a line. Right. You want to take the rut. Yeah. And it's never, the rut never goes all the way across, right? It always mm-hmm. breaks through. Yeah. The other thing in the mantra in my mind, I was thinking of, you're not riding this, especially there was downhill sound sections, yeah. is you're surfing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's was like, I'm not riding this, I'm surfing it. And when you get that kind of mindset, that surfing, you're not stuck, right? Mm-hmm. You're just kind of okay like- It's okay to not have traction there. Exactly. You're kind of yeah. flowing down. You go with gonna, the flow. You're going to jump to like a uh, little divot to divot and yeah. go down and- that with my dropper post, I was actually faster. Jose said this too. In the technical sports, I was faster than Jose and another pretty good mountain biker here in Reno. Nice. Um, so that was, those are two awesome like takeaways to, to do. Yeah. Way to go. Yeah. Nice job. I, I also saw Pete Morris on an uphill section, bunny hop a barrier, yeah. which yeah, was We have video amazing. of that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hey, can we post that in the Facebook uh yeah, you'll get Podcast to cr- you get to critique Pete's form. Uh, everybody, will, I'm sure, will be. <laughs> There's a whole lot that. of power at once. Yeah, yeah exactly. Probably not yeah. good in a race because you get so tired. But yeah. Anyways, it's it was good. I I was with <clears throat> Jose attacked me in the grass. I couldn't keep up in the grass, and I was pulling him back in the technical section. Uh, we had lapped somebody, and uh, my own fault. I instead of waiting to try to take a different line, it was too technical of a line. I washed out and crashed. That took like 15 seconds out, and then there was enough. Yeah. Jose, he was already five seconds ahead of me. So it was kind of just torn. the elastic yeah. broke and no one was behind me and no just, man's yeah, way. Exactly. <laughs> so anyways, very, very fun. Hope to get better. We race next yeah. what, less than a week from now. Yeah. You got beat by a trainer road user though. So that's, that's always better than it's a always good. road user. Yeah. So a uh, good job to him. If you want to find out more about trainer road and what we do here, by the way, uh, you can do so at trainerroad.com. And we've got a bunch of new stuff that we're, uh, we're, we're pushing out with that. Nate, you kind of had a special announcement that you wanted to share. Yeah, uh, you guys don't even lines. know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Do you, is this does this have to do with Trainer Road at all? Or what does it have to do with? Well, guys, <laughs> I, last night I signed up for Ironman Santa Rosa seventy dot three. What? <laughs> really? Chad doesn't even know. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to pull this on you, but whoa, you sound, say it again. Wait, signed what? up for what? <laughs> Ironman Santa Rosa seventy point three. What? July twenty eighth or eighteenth or something of next year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, yeah, next year. No, of twenty nineteen. Whoa. So. Huh. You, my first question, because I'm a gear nerd, is: Are you, you guys gonna let me finish? Uh, no, 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 sorry. Okay. Are you gonna get the Are you gonna get the better fork for your bike? Yeah. For the TT bike, because right yeah. now you have the I still want to get three with the skinny forks. So yeah, get the fat one. I want to get the hydraulic brakes on my P5. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So oh. here's here's the the twist. Old maneuver. I'm only doing the bike. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. All so right. Never mind. My wife's gonna do the uh, the swim and the run. Whoa! And my wife, or uh, I hate when I do this. My sister. Oh. <laughs> my sister's doing the whole thing. She invited us. Yeah. My wife doesn't like to. She could do a half pretty easily, but she doesn't like to ride outside. Yeah. I like to ride outside. Yeah. And it'll be so great to do just the half bike, hmm. not having to worry to run. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know yeah. you could do a relay like that where it could be one person does two legs and another just does one. I didn't either mm-hmm. at the bigger races. I don't think – I looked at the Ironman Santa Rosa because my wife, you know, we was like, well, we should do the Ironman relay. But I don't think you can do it at the Ironman level. But the half Ironman – You can't. I think you can. Mm-hmm. So at least at this one you can. So you're doing a half Ironman bike split. Yeah. Just, that's so it's 56. And that's pretty – I just looked – last year in February when I was at my peak, I did two – I think it was 283 or 287 normalized power for like two hours and 37 minutes Yeah. on a loop here. Yeah. So at sea level, if I could do anything like that on a TT bike, for those people who are triathletes, mm. that would be mm. major power. But it's probably not because I, I have problems on a TT bike. But right. That would be wow. cool. It'd be fun. This is exciting. Yeah, it'd be cool. So hopefully are, there'll be users there. And, are you going to specifically train for this? Mm. Or are you just going to take whatever fitness you have and 
go for it. Yeah. I'm just going to be a comfy setup that Dan Anfield put me on the bike. Yep. And I'll probably do one loop, one three-hour loop before that. Got it. And then still do kind of the crit stuff and have a bunch of mountain bike races that I've scheduled before that. For a second, I got scared that we were going to get ropes into doing. That's where I thought this was going. Yeah, okay, yeah, so, okay, yeah. That, we're going to shut that down real quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not right now, please. That would be pretty. This is rough. the beginnings, guys. I know it's the beginning. So, At some point, we're going to do one. September thirteenth. Yeah. Twenty eighteen. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. So I guess with that, have we covered all the different things? That we're There's doing? one other thing. We're launching a new calendar product very, very soon. If you go to the face train on Facebook, if you go to the Train Road Beta Group. Uh, and you, there's a post there where you can sign up for the beta. We're letting everyone in right now. It's going really well. Uh, so it takes about, we do it once a day. We let new people in and you just check the website to see if you're, uh, have access to the new calendar. Yeah. Yeah. It's a new set of features we're pretty excited about. Uh, I would check them out. We've got a ton of new things coming. So, um, if you want to check those things out, of course, trainerroad.com, you can see them there, look it up in the app store, that sort of thing. Uh, Bert, shall we? Let's go, Bert. All right. Uh, I've got a bone to pick with Bert, but we'll, we'll carry through. He says, I ride a fairly aggressive setup on my road bike with a lot of drop, narrow handlebar for my size, and hoods angled in. I'm going to stop there really quick. All of us, we just got new road bikes. Oh, and, let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Bert. We'll Sorry, Bert. Bert. <laughs> See you later, Bert. It's just a segue so we can talk about bikes. Uh, we So all three of us got the new S-Works Venge. Um, yes. not the same bike, like <laughs> we got separate sure. bikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Nate, you're six, six, uh-huh. Chad, how tall are you? Six, two, 188 oh. centimeters. And I'm 198 centimeters. Oh yeah. We're going to try to do this where we say, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And I'm five foot 10 inches, which in centimeters, I believe that comes to a 177. So right around there or no, that's not right. That says I'm five foot eight. So I need to be 10. Yeah. I'm Google's not working. I might be wrong too. I'm tall-ish, yeah. maybe. I don't know. But I'm five That's foot ten inches. I did my homework. Yeah. I'm 71, 71 inches is no, my height. I'm 198 centimeters. That's right. All right. Good. Neat. Okay. So um, oh. point is, you've derailed me, Nate. Uh, let's, let's, geez. Uh, y'all, can, y'all can figure these things out. Siri exists. You can just say that. Um, but anyways, we all got that bike, but I'm... The thing that's interesting to me is that we all went for, I think, 40 centimeter width bars. bars. Oh, you guys all came to, to 40? <clears throat> yep. That's what I've been on for the last four Chad's or five bucks. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Chad's I'm, been on I 40s. like narrow bars. So You were on 42s or 44s? I was on 44s before because everyone says, you're a tall guy, you need to have wide bars. Went to 40s. I love them. Mm-hmm. Less neck pain. You're more arrow. I'm more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good. I, the way less. Five grams probably, but the 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 fact yeah. is you give up leverage when you go for a narrower bar. But isn't leverage necessarily really needed on a road bike? How much leverage are we talking about? I mean, mm-hmm. th- these aren't mountain bike bars. We're repairing it way down. We're going a couple centimeters down on you know forty fours yeah. to forties. Also, with a mountain bike, it's pretty important to have that leverage because <laughs> of the terrain you're going through. Yeah. Uh, in this case, you don't really need it. Um, so I did that because, you know, arrow is everything. Arrow is w- important. I wonder if he would sprint with more power on like a 46 versus a 40. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. He'd probably be able to create more force through the bike. I don't know if that would necessarily equal more power. To but the does it though? Would you I go mean, slower? From a hammer gripped position, slightly wider. Is it really going to impact it that much? I yeah, just, like, I can't see it. Probably very minimal. Think about if you're lifting weights in the gym and you go out slightly like a little bit, can you really then put out yeah, a bunch more power? stronger. Yeah, it's yeah. not a huge, no. The other thing I'm thinking about is if you are sprinting with narrow, with an, if you have a narrow, more narrow base, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be more aero. Mm-hmm. So even though you, if, let's say you give up 10 watts, you might 
uh, get that back in aerodynamics going at 35 miles per hour. Right. I think I'm the only one stepping down from 42s to 40s. So, um, but I, I use the smallest. Yeah, I know. Smallest one. So, um, 180 centimeters for everybody, by the way. So, um, but it's, I think that it's, that's something that you see like more and more people doing. Some guys even go down to like 36s and some rare bars, you know, mm-hmm. that they're able mm-hmm. to do go like extremely narrow. I don't want to go that narrow. Um, and a lot of this, I think correlates to the width of your shoulders in relation to how you sit on the bike. Those two things, how they combine can create something that's more or less comfortable, but you, you look, found it more comfortable. You said, yeah. So if you can tell on the live podcast, but Chad has a much more broad sh- shoulders than I do. Yes. I'm wearing a medium sized shirt right now. You were in, I'm guessing a large, there's no, there's no, uh, shoulder seams in yours, but, yeah, yeah. but so I'm just saying we're, he's much wider than I am and he's yeah. on the same size bars as I am. Yeah. And I don't have any back pain or neck issues from it. So. Yeah. Yeah. So when you do change that stuff, that's kind of what you'd want to look at. Um, okay. Uh, so Bert back to Bert, he says on the road, I'm comfortable on my bike and feel pretty dialed either on the hoods or the drops. However, I have trouble holding my position on the trainer and find myself doing most of my recovery sitting up and spending a lot of time on the tops overall. I've checked to make sure my bike is sitting level on the trainer. So it's not like my front wheel is too low. You have any advice you'd like to share on your two star podcast? There's my phone to pick. Thanks Bert. Bert. Yeah. yeah, but then he closes it with XOXO, Bert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, a bit of tongue-in-cheek Next there. Next question Too for Matt. Far. Thanks, yeah, Bert. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> uh, See you later, Bert. <laughs> Chad, first first thing is, he's saying on his recovery, he's sitting up. Yeah. Spending, who cares? Right? Yeah. First off, who cares? But uh, on the flip side of that coin, I, I would be concerned. I think even at, at low pressure, you know, low pressure on the quads. So, so basically, you, you had three contact points or three sets of contact points, and you're shifting it down to two because the legs are kind of out of the equation because you're not really putting any weight on them. You're just turning the pedals over. During these recovery intervals. During the recovery rides, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I question, you know, if you're not comfortable in that position, how much extra work are you doing when you are working? And I know the legs take some of the toll, but if you're not balanced on the bike in a relaxed state, then you're probably not balanced on it during a working state. I'm sure that could be argued, but I, I do my recovery rides indoors most of the time, mm-hmm. and I, I'm just as comfortable during the recovery rides I will say after about an hour or so, my, my undercarriage does start to get a little fed up with it all. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking this When though. you have less pressure on the pedals, right? You know. Over the longer term, but I don't, I don't know if he's talking about early in the ride. I mean, sit, do anything for an hour in the same position. You're, there's some fatigue's going to creep into the system. What if it's this, like I see, this happens to people outside too. You do five minutes hard effort. Hmm. You don't sit in that same like attack position during your rest period of five ever. True too. Or if someone attacks in a road race. Everyone changes. They always sit up, right? They're like, oh my God, I'm sitting up. And they they, they put their hands and try to stretch out. And maybe that's it. Maybe he's not even conscious of the fact that when he does interval workouts, he's actually shifting his position more than during a recovery ride where he sits in that same position the whole time. It could be as simple as that. Yeah. You know, you added something, you mentioned something that when a rider isn't perfectly balanced, that these sort of things tend to crop up like these discomfort Mm -hmm. issues. And I'm just doing our traditional base, low volume plan right now to really focus on pedaling mechanics. This has been so good for me so far, even just on the few workouts that I've done so far, but it's like, it's, it's low enough that I puts me in a position where I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's getting uncomfortable. That's because it's not a a lot of power that I'm, you know, pressing my body off those pedals, you know, off the saddle with the pressure through the pedals. And it's been great because then I'm forced to basically look at my technique and go, Oh yeah, I'm completely in the wrong spot. Mm -hmm. You know, my, 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 my hips are folded forward. I need to roll them back slightly. I'm, you know, my shoulders are shrugged up. I need to relax my shoulders. I need to have a more fluid pedal stroke. It's just been perfect for me going back and kind of resetting all of this. Forces you to work on your pedal 
pedal yeah. mechanics. Yeah. And an hour and an hour and a half the other day uh, of just pedaling an easy pace like that. Mm-hmm. I had no saddle discomfort as long as I made sure I was paying attention to the proper. Well, see, that's the other thing. I don't know if he's talking about hurting on the, you know, the crotch region, but if he's, when he's not putting much pressure on his quads, if he's tipping that pelvis forward, I mean, that's a lot of weight that's only going to the, to the undercarriage as I've put it Yeah. rather than the, the legs supporting it. So I guess to kind of back this up, I mean, like the one thing that a lot of people probably don't think about too, is you don't have wind resistance. And even though it seems silly, it really does help mm-hmm. lift you off a bit. It, it does alleviate some pressure on the wrists, alleviate even some pressure on the saddle in a lot of cases. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, when you have wind pushing, you know, a significant amount of wind pushing against your whole body, uh, you know, when you're inside, if you have, I guess, a really powerful fan <laughs> it might be able to kind of lift you off, but that might take you off the bike. Um, but it's, it's something that you have to like consider, uh, right? A couple grams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe not. But it's something to consider. I notice when, um, when I'm riding my bike and if I'm going at like a really great rate of speed down a descent or anything else like that, a lot of the time it's a rest for my wrist, for example, because it's just a little less pressure than me pushing down. So in my experience, uh, <clears throat> I put the, I'm almost always kind of have my hands like a couple centimeters back while I'm training inside doing intervals. Mm-hmm. And then when I get really uncomfortable, I grab the tops mm. and I kind of, and then I, then when I get really, really uncomfortable, I'm moving the whole time because <laughs> I'm trying to like find something that yeah. re- reduces the pain, but nothing does. Yeah. I might need a shorter stem. Perhaps. So, so first thing, check your bike fit, but sounds like he's pretty happy with his bike fit in, in most circumstances, under most circumstances. Mm-hmm. Second thing would be to make sure you are actually seated on the, on the saddle in a proper manner. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you've weighted the sit bones and you're not just hinged on your, on your, uh, perineum, your soft tissue. And then thirdly, move around. Like Nate just described, move your hand position, but also get in, get in and out of the saddle. And on a recovery day, maybe you don't spend much time out of the saddle, but just getting out of the saddle for five or 10 pedal strokes will break that up nicely, I promise. And I, I move around on the saddle. I don't know if oh, Yeah, that a, too. I do it saddle all shifting. the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some yeah some people stay really anchored and that's fine. Some people move around. It doesn't, it isn't necessarily bad to move around. Uh, yeah, yeah. I th- great, great tips. I like how you broke it down like that, Chad. Good stuff. Uh, Matt's question, he says, uh, hey everyone just wrapped up my first season of racing and learned a ton. Thanks for all the help with the prep, both training and advice on the podcast. Sweet. Well, Sometimes I forget about that, that we're kind of like, you know, like we're kind of like people's coaches. We really are people's like, you know, like kind of helping all these people you out. You are. It's cool. It's along for the ride. I'm what's called the anti-coach. <laughs> Don't do this. Don't Here's do what that. not to do. Here's what not to do. He says, I was reflecting on my last road race and thinking of ways I could have used the course profile to my advantage better. As a new racer, I didn't really know how to use the power I had in the best way possible. Could you please spend some time covering how road races over different course profiles usually pan out or how to read the profile ahead of time? I think many people like me might think flat stage equals sprint finish. Uh, uphill finish equals a climber's day. That's like the Tour de France watching. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah going to be my first bit of advice. So, okay, cool. He says, but there's, uh, there seems to be a lot more variability in course, pro- course profiles than just these two. For example, what's the best strategy for a given rider on a downhill finish or a lumpy race or something that would be, you know, nice and rolling. Really? Uh, so, um, and then he says, another interesting conversation might be discussing how to select a course that suits you. I feel like I hear that phrase a lot, but don't really know what it means for me as someone who isn't necessarily a true sprinter or a climber, but better at one to five minute efforts. So we'll kind of try to wrap that in. Maybe we can cover the last question first on how, how to analyze maybe, and how to figure out what, you know, race is ideal. Now, the first thing I do is I Google, 
I, I look up the name of the race, whatever it is. And then I'll say like GPS or, you know, whatever else you can say Strava, whatever else. And you can find a person that's ridden it before. Yeah. Gone are the days. So when I started racing back in the nineties, we didn't have access to this stuff. So recon was show up early and pre-ride the course. And if you didn't have access to that, you got to piece it together. You got to ask people who have done it. Hope the course hasn't changed. If these people, you know, give you any insightful information, but, but it was, you know, simpler times. And yeah. as a result of it, you kind of had to figure it out on the fly most of the time. I think those tips still sit in they're, they're in good, they're great tips though, because you can have the GPS course profile, but there's so many times we're just looking at the course profile. You have to fill in the gaps mm-hmm. beyond that. And it's really helpful to get a person's perspective. Uh, so like the first thing I usually do is search for that course profile. I find it. Um, then a lot of the time, what I actually do is I put it into a service called best bike split, because then it gives me an idea of what, like how to pace this sort of effort roughly assuming that it would just be a solo effort. And then at that point I start looking in, I start asking people or looking around on the internet to see if people have talked about the race and how it unfolds. wealth of information to be. Yep. And then I kind of piece those things together and that's how I get a feel for what the race is. Um, and then, you know, it's easy to understand, you know, if it suits you or not, if you're good at one to five minute efforts, like we have in this case, you know, with Matt, you have a lot of different races that I think would fit one to five minutes is a great range. You can do a lot with one to five minute power. When I think one to five. The only thing you're not going to be good at is if there's a 40 minute climb in it or like, you know, like a really long climb or a mass finish. No, even that, because I think if it's a, if it's a matte finish or a mass flat finish, um, you're the one that's going to jump the sprinters. So even like crit, right. I mean, that's, that's your only choice, right. Right. Is, is to jump the sprinters. And that's really, I think until you get to the upper categories, it, the speed usually of the, at least in my experience in the lower categories, I'm lucky I get to brace with fast people and non-sanctioned ones. And then the slower people, hmm. they don't do this huge, like 35 not, mile per hour. Train not a lot of you, organization. Yeah. That yeah. you can't like jump out sure. of yeah. mm-hmm. where at the lower categories, they're all like, they're not working together as well. And, uh, they're, everyone's trying to be that sprinter. So everyone wants to like <laughs> hold up, right. You might be going 20 or 24 or 25 right. yeah, and yeah, then you yeah. can jump that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, in terms of if a course suits you, it really depends on how the pack is going to race it too. So you kind of have to know what tendencies exist in the group that you're going to race with. And if you don't know those, then you do just have to rely on the course profile and any beta you can get from people. The other thing, if you're good at one to five, I'm thinking getting into a breakaway. That's another great thing you could do, especially on yeah. a lumpy course. Yeah. So, so my first bit of advice would be to, would be to watch the grand tours. I mean, you have three weeks of daily racing, say for the rest days, and you can glean something from every one of those. Mm-hmm. And what I find really interesting is that it never, it's never as, as uh, predictable as you think it is. You see, it's a flat course, you know, it's going to come down to a mass start finish. You know, the big teams are going to reel the breakaway in at the last minute. It doesn't always happen. Yeah. Sometimes it works out. And, and in the case of a guy with one to five minute power, you're in that early break, you make it work. Then you start attacking that break and you using that power again later in the race, mm-hmm. it can, you know, the cards can fall your way. And one, some races that I really like to watch for that sort of information are the spring classics. Cause when it's just one day, you tend to see more, I guess, more, more things thrown at the wall to see if they stick. Because a lot of the time in a grand tour, you know, you don't see quite as many tactics or you see like, sure, they'll let them get away and then they'll end up reeling them in or they won't care about them because they're inconsequential. To but those, those are high level races too, where they know exactly what they have to do in order to bring that breakdown in the nick of time. Yes. It doesn't usually work that way. Not, <laughs> in, lower, not in low category races. And, and 
So I was watching a lot of the USA Pro Crit stuff with Cliff Bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They won out of the breakaway so many times. Yeah. Like, mm. and you, and that's the highest level crit racing in the US. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. And you would think that in a, in a crit, like the Peloton could pull back. Yeah. Right? yeah. But and it didn't happen. And that, that's criterium racing and, and races that come down to sprints, you know, flatter races. Even on the climbing races, you assume you're not a climber. That means you aren't going to ride it like a climber would ride it. Yeah. You don't sit in, wait for the final climb, and then go full gas from the bottom with the rest of the climbers. Yeah. You do something different. In your case, employ a breakaway prior to the climb, yeah. most likely. I mean, yeah. there are other tactics or getting in the early break, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, now getting into, I guess, some, I guess, just basic scenarios too uh, mm-hmm. that a lot of people see, like, on it really the the one thing that you have to consider is the larger context of the race before you consider how the tactics will go if it is within a stage race and you should expect that typical thing that you see during grand tours in the sense that people will let certain people go they may reel them in later on but there's a greater goal but if it's just a one day race then you can expect kind of no holds barred in terms of of what people will do there aren't any like contingencies Long, in place longer or bigger picture sort of stuff yeah right exactly uh I notice that, so if there's a race going on in lower categories, it's a bit of a free for all. So we'll just assume it's kind of higher category stuff. And especially if you have something like a criterium, you have to know that a break will get away or try to get away very early on. That's just, that's just how things work. Um, if you have a race that I found with like a consequential climb at some point in it, some you'll, sometimes you'll see breaks go, but really the action starts in those sort of moments. So during your course recon, if there's a really big climb or really, you know, rolly climby section amongst a relatively flat section of a course, that's where you can expect things to happen. So like when it comes to tactics, I think you have to mix not only the possibilities of what a person could do on a bicycle, but you know, how that's going to interact with the terrain that is going over. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, like, a, we have one race in the Northern California region called the winter's road race. Actually, I don't think it's going on anymore, but it's a great road race. And it was basically through orchards and it was kind of flat and like nothing until you got to these really steep rolly climbs. And then you would do laps on that. And I think that, you know, a uh, cat, you know, P one twos ended up doing something like five or six laps on that. And every time you basically knew that somebody was going to try to get away. And then by the time they hit the climbs, the pack would end up usually rolling up and carrying enough speed through those rolling Hills that it would be able to get close enough and then they'd reel them in. But really the action always happened. It was almost like somebody called a truce on the rest of the course because they knew it was going to happen right there. So in terms of tactics, there's so many different things you can do. You can look at the cliff bar videos that we've done. You look at the race analysis videos we've done on YouTube and you can see different tactics being tried and how they play out. Uh, but the big thing is it always ties in to how the course, the other course profile. I wanna say two comments on that. First comment is, and if you know if that's gonna be your weak spot, like mm-hmm. probably for Chad and I, that would be our weak spot because mm-hmm. relative, we're, we're not as good at climbers as something yeah. like Jonathan or something, sure. is I would go in a d- different spot. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you go in a spot, just because everyone says it always happens this way, yes. when you do something when it doesn't happen that way, yeah, that's, everyone goes, wait, they look at each other. Yeah. Like, that's, you're that's not good supposed intel. to do this. If you know when a race blows up every time that race takes place, well, don't go there. I mean, yeah. just to try to try to piece something else together. Something yeah. that catches people unaware. Yeah. I've seen races where that happens, uh, where, I mean, these are silly ones. Yeah. Floyd Landis, when he did it, <laughs> that's yeah. obviously silly. Yeah. Chris Froome too, though. Everyone's yeah. like, why would you go two and a half hours yeah. from the end? Yes, like that zero. seems like a silly attack. Yeah. Uh, we can, we can look at each other for a little bold. bit. Yeah. I mean, you have to take risks too, yeah. but yeah, in response to your, um, selecting courses that suit you, <clears throat> this is, this goes very much in hand in hand with what we talk about uh, avoiding when you pigeonhole yourself, saying I'm not a climber, I'm not a sprinter. 
how do you know? I mean, certainly if you know you have particular strengths, you, you'll choose courses that suit those strengths. But if you can't, it doesn't mean don't do the race. It doesn't mean don't get out there and, and glean some new experience because you can learn a lot about yourself as a rider. You can learn a lot of new strategy. You can learn about your opponents. I mean, there's so much other information to be gathered. I, I highly recommend not abiding, uh, avoiding courses that you're not specifically suited to. And my, my second point, that's, that's, goes right in what I was going to say for the second one is I think a lot of people, they give up a chance to win because they don't want to get last place, mm-hmm. mm. right? Like you, you say, I, I can survive in this race in the Peloton if I just sit in rather than attack early. And then there might be a counterattack and I might get spit out mm-hmm. and get last place on the overall results. But it's so much better for you as a rider and for your overall like development to try that stuff out than to just yes. sit in the whole time. You don't. You what, don't learn. What do you learn from finishing 30th and yeah. just kind of phoning in the finish? Yeah. I mean, yeah. take some chances. I mean, mix things up a bit. See, you know, what you're good at, what you're not good at. Yeah. So it shouldn't really, it doesn't matter that you get last place. That doesn't mean you're the slowest. Totally. And it doesn't matter if you do a shorter race distance, yeah. right? Yeah. These are two things that people need to get over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think that if you're good at one to five minute efforts, you have like, you should never. to play. Yeah. You should never be saying, you know, oh no, this course is like really not for me. Even on something, perhaps with a long climb, you could really throw something in there that might be able to get away. So you're pretty versatile. I think of Peter Sagan, for example, like that guy, remember the tour of California when he, he was. He can do about anything, but yeah. Yep. One to five minute power is certainly in his wheelhouse. Exactly right. Yep. Yeah. So it's not. So basically, yeah. <laughs> so question. basically, Matt, you're Peter Sagan. So good. Good news. <clears throat> um, let's go into Eric's question. He says, after a hot and intense ride or workout, what is the recommended approach to cool my body down? Should I use icy cold 32 degree Fahrenheit water? Oh, that sounds rough. Uh, a cold shower around 50 degrees Fahrenheit, or a lukewarm shower around 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Colder water will cool down my core the fastest, but it might also stop blood flow to my muscles, which I assume is bad for recovery and repair. Uh, this is like the, the ice bath thing. And yeah. I, I know I come from the world of motocross originally mm-hmm. and everyone did ice baths, well, that, with, you know. With all these recovery modalities, you have to ask yourself what the goal is. I mean, if you're just looking to cool yourself back down, then that there's you have, you have a lot of freedom that you don't have if you're chasing recovery or adaptation. So, uh, and, and the unfortunate thing with all these recovery modalities is they're so hard to measure and it's so hard to pick out what makes the one difference. It's really difficult to attribute it to any one thing. I'm taking ice, I'm using ice baths now and I'm performing better. It must be the ice baths. Well, what else are you doing differently? So it's really hard to say for sure that it's one thing and, and not a combination of others. And on the... Uh, the matter of recovery modalities. Um, this is a lot of this is called from uh, Alex Hutchinson's book Endure, mm-hmm. and then in particular, he cites a guy named Olivier Dupuy who did a meta analysis where he culled over almost seventeen hundred studies down to ninety nine that he felt were well developed. Cool. And, and attributed to all these recovery modalities were basically after one of four things, reducing muscle soreness, reducing muscle fatigue, reducing inflammation, or uh, repairing muscle damage. Mm-hmm. And then within that, he saw that both in terms of reducing muscle soreness and muscle fatigue, they were so heavily placebo influenced that he could never say with any you know surety that this is in fact what's making the difference here. And Alex Hutchinson in, in the book I just mentioned, Endure, talks about one particular study where they compared uh, 59 degree ice baths, so we're talking very cold, to 95 degree tepid baths. And the, it, it was unanimous that the 59 degrees worked better in terms of recovery, reducing soreness, reducing fatigue. 
in comparison to the tepid baths. But then when they used the tepid baths and they introduced a quote unquote recovery fluid or recovery oil, yeah. I think it was, everyone said, nope, they're just as good as the 59 degrees cold baths. <laughs> turns out that magic oil, that recovery oil was bath soap. So again, the placebo effect is is a strong one. It can't, it's, it's really hard to argue mm. that, yeah, my recovery improved because of this modality or it improved because I just feel better. Hmm. But then, you know, the argument is, well, if you feel better, who cares? Yeah. Which, which, yeah, if it's in your brain, right? If it's yeah. in your brain, yeah. it's better not, than nothing. <laughs> not anymore, people. Sorry. <laughs> Kill Joy Chad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, I was putting in recovery oil. My <laughs> wife wrote on my shampoo. It's recovery oil. That's, that's, been that's why you had out. such a good season. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Real recovery oil. <laughs> but then on, on the other side of that, or uh, in addition to that, the inflammation side, the muscle damage side, the only way they can you know, get that information is, is via blood tests. And the hard thing with blood tests is it's really hard to link changes in blood parameters to actual changes in improvement. Again, it's just a tough correlation to draw. So it, it kind of goes back to what I just said, you know, if you believe it works, well, why not? Yeah. But, but there's just not a lot of hard science to back up any of these. I thought there was some stuff that showed that it actually reduced, um, adaptions like getting too cold anything does so so when it comes to ice baths in particular i mean there seems to be at least within the few studies i went over a, a tipping point right around 50 degrees mm. where above that it's cold enough to encourage it's just it's not too cold to discourage vasoconstriction so you're still getting the blood flow that you're after whereas if you go colder than that the blood flow reduces and then everything that comes with improved blood flow goes with it um and then so, so say you do find that perfect uh, increase in blood flow and reduction in in inflammation, then that's when you have to start asking yourself the questions: Is this delaying the healing process, the natural healing process? Is this hindering adaptation? Maybe affecting the cell signaling down at a lower level? Um, is it uh, flying in the face of the natural responses that would otherwise take place? And this brought me back to a quote that Jordan Rapp made a while back. He calls this outsourcing. Mm. So he says, outsourcing your recovery is an uh, to an ice bath is the same as outsourcing anything else. You don't gain the experience from doing it yourself. Hmm. So in this case, your body doesn't gain that experience. So yep. he likens it to two steps forward, one step back. And I fully agree with him. Yeah. I can't help but think that it feels a bit like a ham-fisted approach to to a, perhaps a problem that doesn't you know require such a thing. Yeah, maybe it's one of those things that we don't need to manage, at least not so closely. Maybe we manage it through the two things that we know and we can measure do work, and that's sleep and refueling. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to refueling, I'm talking about not only the composition of what you're eating, but also the timing of when you eat it. Mm -hmm. If you're hot after a race, I know a lot of people will feel so good to get in that cold lake or river. Okay, so that's that's something else entirely, and that's something that I wanted to add in because I did this very thing in Italy where the, the hotel rooms weren't well air conditioned. Same thing could apply to our, our uh, <laughs> single track six, single track six, oh, yeah. where you have to find methods to cool yourself down. And in that case, you're not really concerned with anything but thermal regulation, just cooling yourself back down. And I found cold, wet towels, legs propped up, and a nap, along with cool fluids did the trick. I was going to say ice slushies. Yeah. Like those kind of things, especially totally. right after a race. Would well, that be another good, like, great. like a real sugary, icy. Mm. Yeah. Why like not? From post, post workout. Oh yeah. Yeah. But at a race, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely like a big ice slurpees. Oh, yeah. Magical. Slurpees to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we should do. We should have the trainer road slurpee trailer. Yeah. That'd yeah. be pretty awesome. And then it has like a weight. How much whey protein do you want in slurpee? <laughs> yeah. That'd be pretty that'd be awesome. Cool. I, I think I see a lot of people, I, I feel like, uh, it's so unpleasant getting into a true ice bath. Like uh, if anybody hasn't done it, it is yeah. extremely unpleasant, very painful and uncomfortable. And I feel like a lot of people actually glean kind of like, uh, they feel as if they're doing absolutely everything and they're sacrificing everything. Mm -hmm. And you get into this, this thing that's, you know, 
bordering on the own self-masochism where you're basically getting to the point where you feel like I'm willing to do whatever it takes to yeah, get faster. Probably some small psychological benefit to suffering after you suffer like that. I, I mean, sure. it just makes right. you a bit tougher. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It makes you think that you're doing perhaps something that other people aren't willing to do. You're Dedication. willing to make yourself more uncomfortable. Why not tie that back to the whole placebo effect again? Mm -hmm. Ice baths make me feel like I did the right thing and I feel you know, in my mind, positive about the future training because I did, you know, I checked all the boxes. And here's my thought process on that. If, if, you know, really what you're doing is you're, you're telling yourself that you have, you know, you're so dedicated, you're willing to do whatever it takes. Um, in my mind, I would rather be so dedicated that I'd be willing to complete my workouts with absolute precision instead of close precision. And then to recover as absolutely as well as I can, instead of, you know what I mean? Like mm. put that, that, that vigor and vim that you have into other aspects or all aspects, rather than just dumping into something like, you know, that's outsourced like that. That's just, you know, you're saying you're hoping that that takes care of it. I think that's something that a lot of people perhaps miss. Um, I even see people, you know, when they talk about like fasted rides or anything that makes it more hardcore, so to speak in air mm. quotes. They, they, they derive a lot of like personal pride out of that. And that can help them at least, you know, stay motivated or something like that. But you can do that. You can take that and sprinkle it throughout other aspects of your performance or your training and glean the same benefit, you know, instead of putting it into something like, you know, an ice bath. Before we were building this office and we were designing it, there, I was going to have a room. I wanted to have a room where I was going to put a sauna in it and a, uh, ice bath, like an ice, like call it our marginal gains room. Yeah. yeah. Like the, like, you know, like a yeah. collegiate or NFL stadium or something would have that. Yeah. And I looked for both and for the, the sauna, there's a lot of finished studies that say it, but mm -hmm. then there's a lot of studies that don't, it was, it was too like went back and forth on it for performance. Yeah. And then the ice baths, I couldn't find anything that really was like, like this will make you faster. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is more of what, I mean, it's exactly what Chad said. Mm -hmm. It's either detrimental or placebo rather than. Yeah. This is, there is, there's some good, there are some good studies and more crop up on the heat stress training mm -hmm. and how it, uh, some of the benefits overlap. Well, they don't overlap, but complement the benefits you get from altitude training. Yep. So more, more and more science is cropping up and I'm still a firm believer in, in the whole. Can we put one in your office heat stress then? approach. We could just <laughs> use it. Just yeah. Why not? Oh yeah. I know. Yeah. In the afternoon. <laughs> no, I see what you know. No, we all train in the afternoon. Just jump in in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, as long as we like, face it away from me. <laughs> I don't want some right. sweaty. Make sure Chad like working and then like, come in with a towel on yeah, yeah, like some sweaty half-clad body yeah. staring at me for 30 minutes down right there so we can stare right at chat while he works that'd be cool. no, let's not do that yeah um joseph's question ready uh mm -hmm. he says hey guys i uh, love the podcast it's a great mix of tech training and don't take yourself too seriously advice Awesome. We try hard. I like how you summed that up. Yeah. <laughs> he says, my question is about the racing mindset. I primarily compete in cross country mountain biking and an Xterra triathlon, which for those that don't know, that's off-road triathlon. Um, so they usually, they swim in a lake or something similar, and then they mountain bike and they trail run. Sounds like a, a, a kind of a strangely good time. That's kind of great. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, he says, I'm getting quite fit and in training, I can drop people and ride very aggressively. However, on race day, I have a very difficult time being aggressive and finding myself being way too polite on the trails. I often get stressed if someone is nipping at my wheel uh, to pull over to let that one person pass, and often I end up letting the whole field pass. Can you offer some advice on how to be an aggressive racer without being a jerk? Yeah, that happens sometimes. I've had that where you're on a trail and one person's behind you, mm -hmm. and you're like, I'm just getting out of the way for this person. Yeah. And then it's like... There's 14 back, like, you know, yeah. and they all oh, yeah. come back and you just stop. If I'm that one, per if I'm second in line, third in line, and I see one person pull over, 
I get so close to the person in front of me so that the other per- the person that's pulled over doesn't have a chance to get back, back over. In, yeah. 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 Jonathan seems like a nice guy, but you are when you're racing cross country, you're in it you're competitive. You're yeah. in it to win it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, not not rude. Um, but I'm I'm assertive, I guess I would say. Yeah, and you're that's, very assertive. <laughs> yeah. And that's the <laughs> but that's the thing that people I think yeah, that's how you separate it. Like, um first of all, if if I'm slower and somebody's behind me and we're not on the last lap, I let them by. National championships is probably a different story, right? But even then, if it's early on, I might do it because many times you'll find yourself being so caught up in the rider behind you that you're, Mm. you know, you're just wasting that mental energy and focus that you could be putting into being a better rider. So I, a lot of the time, just, I concede that and then get into a spot where I can truly focus. Um, Because I feel like, especially with mountain biking, uh, cyclocross or very tactical racing, uh, you know, like criterium racing or anything else like that, if you're not mentally very focused and sharp, you miss things and, you know, it can cause even crashes. So uh, from my point of view, I feel that there's never any room to be rude or demeaning to a person. And you hear that a lot of, a lot of times in races and it's, and it's, it's definitely not needed. That's the worst. It's not never needed. And you don't do that. Oh, heck no, no, never, never. Um, but there is certainly, you know, uh, I, if I'm behind somebody and I want to get by and it's apparent that, you know, I'm faster than that person, I will kindly ask them genuinely. I'll say, whenever you get a chance, do you mind if I pass? Yeah. That seems to be the statement. I hear that when you get a chance. Yep. I don't, I don't want to make that person pull over instantly. I don't want to make them do anything like that. It's just whenever they get a chance, uh, if they don't respond to that and they don't move over, then I'll say, I'd really like to get by. And then if they don't do that, then at some point I will make a pass. Escalates. Right? Yeah. And, and I'll make a pass. And that doesn't mean that I will knock them over. I would never do that. I, I, you know, you may bump elbows with them, that sort of thing, but you don't knock them over, but that means that look, you just have to wait and find your time to pass. Now, if you're that rider that's getting passed and you're kind of worried about that, honestly, if you're worried about it, uh, if the pay, or I say the main rule is if the pace differential is really, you know, the Delta between you and that rider is huge. And you know that then move over and let them buy. It's like when I hear a lapped rider coming by or either way, I'm, I'm lapping someone or someone's lapping me. Then you got to get out or really fast. Yeah. Those two things don't mix. Right. Um, so keep those ones separate. And if that person's really fast, get out of the way. Otherwise, uh, behave as natural, I guess. Um, if you're a mean person and you've, you know, like this aggressive, it doesn't sound like you're a mean person at all, Joseph. No, it's possible to be aggressive without being a jerk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, yeah, I think that it's totally I don't know that okay. It's that fine line. I mean, you recognize you're the stronger rider and you got to get around. Doesn't doesn't make you a jerk if you do so. It sounds like Joseph is a good swimmer. He gets on the trail and then some really good mountain bikers get on behind him and come up to pass. Which is common in Xterra from what I gather is that you All have really lines. fast mm-hmm. mountain bikers too that like go to Xterra and, you know, they're really bad swimmers and then they're fantastic mountain bikers. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, so how do you, what do you do with the... If there is a whole, this, this happened to me at Carson city, except I crashed. Mm-hmm. And then I like, I got back on my bike and I had to wait for like 40 people to yeah. pass. Cause there yeah. wasn't a good spot to jump back in. Yeah. Yep. You wait. What you, you just have to wait. Yep. In my mind, if, if there's, if you pull over and there's a whole string of traffic, that's really that close. The reason that they're there is because you were holding things up and in my mind. And so it's okay. Like let them pass and don't make, don't tell yourself that you're a pushover or you're doing something wrong. That's just how it goes. Mm-hmm. If there's a whole line of traffic, that means that it needs to spread out. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm okay with it. And I've, I've had to, this year at a cycle or at a cross country race, there were kids that I've been teaching that were just blowing by me and like new riders because 
I was just on a really bad day in a race and I was climbing extremely slowly. And I pulled over and I let a whole string of like nine people go by and every one of them just completely punched my ego in the face, right? Like, <laughs> but it was okay. And I had to be okay with that because the fact was I was holding them up, right? That's, yeah, so, I, sure. you know, it's not my, it's not my decision to be able to hold up the race. Here's another question I have. Um, we do, I'm signed up to do or not signed up, but I'm going to do those races down in California, the TBF ones that I like, but mm -hmm. it's a, it's a short loop mm -hmm. and there'll be lapped riders. And occasionally this has messed people up, but I'll say coming on your right. Mm. Cause usually on the road, it's always on your left, but yeah. sometimes based on where the trail is, they, some really new riders too, they don't pull over <clears throat> they're just trying to like stay alive yep and yeah. there'll be a section on my right to pass and i've said on your right and then they pull into the right yeah, yeah. and they yell at me and they say why didn't you say on it's, your left and i'm like because there's nowhere on your left. when you're already just clinging that's hard information to process yeah right and left it's it, it is it's hard yeah. and, well there's there's yeah. clinging like to uh like physiologically and then there's uh like uh, psychology, no, with your brain. I can't say it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you're scared because you think you're going to be hurt on sure. the trail. So you don't want to, totally. uh, at the higher levels, people, they can like, they go off the trail and it's no big deal. Yeah. And, and it's, can you do that? Time, can you say on your right and pass yeah, on the right? Totally. The tricky thing is like, I, I prefer to use instead of on your, because on your oftentimes gets dropped. It's not yeah. really very well pronounced language mm -hmm. versus right or left is a little bit better. I usually say passing left, passing right. Ooh, and I use good. the word passing because then I always wonder. Me. Simpler, the better. Yeah. Yeah. And I always wonder if that person didn't hear on your, and they just heard left. So they don't know if I'm going left or if they should move left. You know what I mean? So it's, if you say passing, then the, the side that you're passing on, I don't know if that's better, but that's what I've, you know, that's what I've used. The other thing, if it's like, sometimes you'll, on certain parts of it, when you're coming from a lapped rider, this makes me sound fast. I'm not fast, but <laughs> <laughs> there'll be, it'll be double track or something. Yep. Um, or they'll be going very slow and there's spots for them to pull over off from far away. I'm saying coming up or lapped, you know, lappers coming up yep. and then they like, it's, you almost kind of yell it. And yeah. it's like 10 seconds out and they can hear you. And people have done it to me too. Yeah. Uh, pros will lap me like, no yeah. problem, right? And you can hear them coming. Yeah. Uh, is that's a, that's yeah. cool to do too, right? Totally, yeah. <clears throat> and honestly- they, they appreciate it, right? Absolutely. A right? warning. Yeah, one thing that I've done is actually, I got a, it's called a Nog Oi bell. It's a, it's a tiny little K-N-O-G. Uh, it's a tiny little bell, but it looks very discreet. And I put that on my bars. And it's, you would never guess that it's a bell. It doesn't look like a bell for those, you know, vain people like me, but that honestly, it's amazing how positively somebody, somebody reacts to the ding of a bell versus I'm coming up on your left. Like e even if you say it kindly, mm. when people hear a bell, they're like, oh, that's great. It's hard like to be offended. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that it's really helpful for me. You just have to make sure that you position it away from your dropper post lever, because when you're tired and confused, you'll be hitting your bell and wondering why your saddle isn't going anywhere. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's happened. So, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I think that it's totally okay to ask to pass. If there are a bunch of people behind you, you let them by. Um, you don't have to be a jerk to be assertive. That's for sure. So, uh, he added something into, we should read this. He says, kind of in line with what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. He says, I listened to your most recent podcast and heard the listener question about sitting versus standing all day. I'm a physical therapist and get this question a lot. My answer, the human body does not tolerate prolonged position holding. Almost any one static position, whether sitting, standing, or whatever has to cause potential or has to potentially cause harm. He says, we are designed for movement. So I advise my patients to change position often, sometimes as often as every 15 minutes. A standing desk is great, but standing for nine hours is not. Agreed. Get up often or sit down, move or sit down often, move around. Uh, and then he says, keep up the work up, keep up the good work. And thanks for the podcast. He says, you'll be looking into train a road for the winter season. Nice. Cool. 
Good to hear. Yeah, and that kind of ties in with what we were just talking about with recovery rides on the bike. Yeah. If you find yourself, because it's a recovery ride, staying in a, a relatively static position, obviously your legs are moving, but maybe that's maybe it is as simple as that. You're just holding that same position, whereas if it were an interval workout, you'd be changing position based on the intensity. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Steve's question. He says, hello, trainer road. Thanks for the wonderful podcast. I'm a past subscriber who has been lured back into the trainer road universe through this podcast. (laughs) He says, exactly my plan, Steve. (laughs) He says, keep up the great work. My question is on water bottle placement that often optimizes aerodynamics. I found conflicting information online and I was surprised that you guys did not mention water bottle placement in your TT article here. And that's on blog.trainerroad.com where we talked about how to get faster without aero equipment. He says, I'm often plagued with questions <laughs> such as is a single bottle on the down tube or seat tube more arrow or is one large bottle capacity more arrow than two smaller capacity bottles. He says science and sports sells a 1000 milliliter bottle. That is huge. I've been using it, but given its large size, I'm trying to be mindful of where I place it. Thanks for all the tips. From don't, Steve. don't use that bottle for arrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. okay. I'm way into this stuff. Yeah. I'm going to over the years, I'm going to go through kind of what I've seen like it um so in the olden days in like 2005 and stuff there was a lot of um that sometimes bikes that they measured would be faster with a bottle on the uh down tube Mm -hmm. almost never the seat tube and then for a while there were like people had dimpled bottles yeah and they were even faster uh i remember i had what was like science and sport or not science sport i forget it was rocket something yeah 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 i used to always race with that bottle yeah as it's gone on, there are certain bikes that they may, like the manufacturer says, they're faster with bottles and they're designed specifically for bottles. Mm-hmm. They're usually not straight up TT bikes. They're almost like a, they're like a fairing that basically closes off more of the negative space inside the front triangle. Yeah. Right. So like that, that little hollow that you have inside the front triangle, they usually fill in a portion of that at the same profile as the existing frame. I usually see it with a blunted edge on the rear side of the down tube yeah. when that happens, but it's not always. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I ask this question a lot. I, I bet you there's a video for the specialized wind tunnel. I should have looked, mm. sorry. But Jim from Aerosports, he says bottles always slower. Whenever he tests it, it's slower. Yeah. The only one I'd say that it's not always, always slower is sometimes they can get like hidden from the wind bottles. Yeah. I'm thinking about the special or the Cervelo P4 yeah. where it's like they've engineered it. So there's a bottle that goes down into the, like the bottom of the triangle yeah. so that that fills up some space. But those are usually then UCI illegal, illegal yeah. when you race. Yeah. Um, the good spots to put a bottle are if you're a triathlete are between your arms. And that's usually actually, it's going to be farther back behind your elbows because it's kind of trying to close the space off behind your elbows. Yeah. That's what Jim told us. Yeah. Or behind the saddle. Yep. Um, if you do have to have a bottle on your bike um, that's not in those two positions, the down tube is better and an arrow bo- bottle is better than a round bo- bottle. Mm-hmm. And I also have this uh, Science and Sport bottle. You guys have seen the leader bottles here? Big. Mm-hmm. They are gigantic. Yeah. Like that is not the bottle. They're great have. for staying hydrated off the for bike. Training, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when I, so when I do my, air quotes triathlon yeah yeah. Uh, i will have probably oh geez actually i don't know you you think you'll put them on the back behind the saddle i don't think i will because looking at so in a triathlon triathletes usually carry too much water like for what you need Mm -hmm. and there are so many aid stations uh i think i I did it i can i'll probably do something between the like a between the arms bottle 
that I can get out or like a, a profile design, one of those arrow yeah. uh, yeah. like reservoirs, reservoirs yeah, that you can do. I have to look at the latest research on those, but I believe there's there's actually torpedo ones if you're a triathlete. Yeah. It's like a bottle between your arms, but it also has a straw on it. Mm-hmm. Torhan's one, I think. Yeah, Torhan's has one, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you got to just make sure on that is you don't want the straw sticking straight up. <laughs> because the straw sticking straight up, that alone can be more drag mm-hmm. than a bottle. Yeah, you so kind of keep your straw. I remember Liz Lyles used to have her straw actually, like I think with a with a rubber band or something, actually strapped to the bottle. And then when she would need to, she'd just be able to drop her head down. Her position was such that she could just drop her head down, yeah. grab it and kind of lift it up and drink. And then she'd let the straw go with her teeth. The Specialized Shiv came with a, a magnet on their uh, on their straw that you could hook to the handlebars that yeah. wasn't strong enough. And whenever you hit a bump, it would it dangle down. Oh. oh my God, it was so annoying. <laughs> and I try to get bigger magnets, but other ones you'll see either... They either have like a people will fold the straw back down and like tug it in or something, yeah. or have a rubber band or a magnet that's yeah. better. Or um, some brands will actually put like a um, something you slide onto the straw and it makes it like arrow. It like it's, it's like a little airfoil. <laughs> yeah, it's like makes an airfoil. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. I'm guessing those are effective. Yeah, triathletes, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I guess that's probably. All I have to say on this. Uh, on yeah. a normal road bike, I think it's always been like, like Jim was saying with that sort of thing. It's very rare that bottles are going to be faster, you know? Yeah. Unless it's designed for that. I think there Cervelo had one like that. And then BMC just came out with one. It's a little more, bit more integrated yeah, into yep. the frame. BMC's yeah. aero road bike is very integrated Ooh. there. Yeah. I want to see, it's probably talk to your manufacturer because it, it is tough. It's like, it's changed over the years. So you could read a study from a few years ago and depending on when your bike was built, it may apply or may not apply. Yeah. Yeah. And the tricky thing too, is like a lot of people say, well, is it better to take my cages off or keep the cage on? You know what I mean? Like a cage without a bottle, is that less aerodynamic than no cage at all? Um, and I would think yes. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people, yeah, it's, I think it's been proven that it's, that it's not. This is some dimension too. When I beat you guys in the Merck's time trial, I was taking off my cages. People were like, why are you taking off your cages? I'm like, cause I want to win suckers. Like, <laughs> and you did. I did win. Yeah. All, it's just like Jed said, the false attribution. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I took it must have been all, that. Because of the cages. Yeah, all the hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Probably was. Um, so that's, that's, I mean, I guess if you're really looking at aerodynamics, don't use a bottle or have a frame that allows for a fairing bottle, so to speak. Yeah. That's the, the, the manufacturer specifically says it's faster with the bottle. Awesome. Cindy says, I listened to all your podcasts and don't think you've answered this one before. I live in the UK and I'm about to start training for my first hill climb season. Yesterday, I rode up a cat four climb two kilometers in length and I went fairly hard, but not all out. And it took six minutes. She says shortly after my chest started to feel tight and then I couldn't stop coughing. 24 hours later, I feel as if I have a chest infection with chest tightness and a productive cough. This has happened a number of times on similar occasions, always when climbing apart from once during a hard effort in a criterium. I completely appreciate that you are not medically trained. <laughs> I'm glad she says Good. that. <laughs> she says, but I am a doctor, she says. And she's asking us. Yes. <laughs> oh, Cindy. <laughs> and I've <laughs> wondered whether you have come across a, this track hack, she calls it in quotes, or pursuiter's cough, as she calls it. I can't seem to find much in the literature about it, but it sounds like my symptoms fit this. My question is, is this something riders commonly face? I think all of us kind of nodded our head when we were preparing for this. Right? Oh, yeah. All of us have experienced it. Uh, and then she says, what contributes to it? And how can I reduce the likelihood of this happening, given the negative impact it will have on my training? Yeah, so, so Cindy, why I, I can't say this is indeed your case because of the 
the fact that 24 hours later, you feel like you have a chest infection tells me it's not what I'm about to describe <laughs> to you, but hopefully this will be useful in any, in any regard yeah. or other, in other regards. The, uh, the term, as you probably well know, is exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, not to be confused with exercise-induced asthma. If you're asthmatic and exercise brings on an asthma attack, yep, that's EIA. Otherwise, it's just EIB. You don't have to have asthma to suffer exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. We're just talking about narrowing or inflammation of some sort of the airways. Mm-hmm. And that can happen <clears throat> regardless of whether or not you have asthma. If you do have asthma, well, it's probably going to happen... Uh, it's it's highly likely it's going to happen due to your asthma. Mm. Um, but that the symptoms, as you describe, shortness of breath and wheezing, um, you, there's a decrease in endurance, obviously less oxygen to the muscle, chest tightness, cough, upset stomach, sore throat. So we've, we've all been there. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you push hard, these symptoms manifest. Uh, anyone susceptible, um, it's typically more severe if you are a diagnosed exercise-induced bronchoconstriction sufferer candidate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> um, but typically, and this is why I'm not sure it's what you're describing is the symptoms, uh, they start pretty soon after the high intensity 10 or just a few minutes in, and then they subside 10, 15 minutes afterwards, fully resolved 20, 30 minutes afterwards. So the fact that yours are hanging on for so long says it's probably not, not this, um, at least maybe something's tagging along. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Is it, in, in, go ahead. Okay. So, so as far as why, um, mouth breathing first off. So anytime you open, introduce mouth breathing into the, you know, in kind of maybe don't remove the nasal passages from the scenario that you're, you're taking out all the, the warming that happens and the humidifying that happens before the air actually gets to your lungs. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one thing. Um, hyperventilation, which we do as cyclists. I mean, we ramp our heart rate way up, which means our breathing goes way up along with it. And if we're breathing in cold and or dry air, and it seems to be more attributable to dry air than cold air, mm-hmm. although the combination obviously is going to be the, the double whammy. Um, or simply airborne irritants mm-hmm. are what cause it. So the, it's pretty clear on what you can or what you can do to avoid it is try to breathe through your nose, but in high intensity workouts, it's not, not, not such a <laughs> easy get. Just keep going VO2, but stop breathing with your mouth. <laughs> yeah. It, but you can do things and as uncomfortable as it is. And I hate to do it, which is why I'll spend most of my time indoors is when, when it's this cold out is to wrap your face in you know something, mm. whether it's a balaclava or those little buff. vented devices or a buff. That's all good and fine. I, I find they get wet and they're just restrictive and they kind of freak me out. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be that guy again. <laughs> Marina wool. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you Is guys, that good stuff, Jonathan? It's great. It's great. Let me tell you all about it. Um, but no, for, for my, the buffs that I, so actually producer Ian, who's in the room with us, uh, he's also a backcountry skier as well. Chad, you're, you are becoming a backcountry skier. Yep. I'm on my way. And it's extremely aerobic, like, er, and hard efforts, especially when you're with Ian. Um, he's fast. Uh, so when you're going up, you know, uphill and it's really cold and it's, you know, 10 degrees, that sort of thing, I always have a buff over my face like that. And I've found that it, like a lot of the ones like the balaclavas and stuff, they get completely soaked and yeah, it's, yeah. it just makes it worse. But I've found that once again, with Merino wool, it's, but you don't so have that problem. Yep. Okay. Well, okay. It kind of, kind of in line with that. So we got this, or we discussed this question the very same day that I had done an early morning sprints workout. Mm-hmm. And I attributed my, um, sprinters cough or, uh, pursuiters cough to the fact that I had gone high intensity. So did a little bit of digging and I found a pretty recent study by good at Tal that, um, in the journal of sports science, they compared responses of, uh, exercise, exercise induced bronchoconstriction between sprint activity and continuous activity. Wow. So they had people do nearly the workout I did four 30 second sprints with a roughly five minutes of separation. And I'm going to assume these were all out. I just read the abstract didn't dig into the study. Mm-hmm. And then the other people did 20 minutes at 65% of PPO. 
mm. peak power output. So it probably puts them somewhere between 80 and 90% of threshold. Mm -hmm. And they did that for 20 minutes, same effects on airway responsiveness. So, so no changes in ventilation or O2 delivery between the two intensities of exercise. Mm. So at least we can rule out the fact that it, it's not necessarily, or according to this study, it's not at all, whether or not you go high intensity versus moderate intensity for longer duration. And, uh, uh this is, I just say it, talk to your doctor. I know she's oh, a doctor, always. but pulmonary always. doctor. I don't know what kind totally. of doctor you're at. Mm -hmm. um, that would be, especially because you said after 24 hours. Mm -hmm. But I remember, uh, this anecdotally, this happens all the time to me. Yeah. I think when we did the Mark Pro camp, when we did that 20-minute climb, yeah. we were all doing that. I was coughing up stuff. Yeah. And the kind of the, this is the bro science, but the guys were like, Oh, that just means you went hard. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like I've you heard that. You didn't try hard enough unless you're, you have this kind of like. Yeah. So, here. so I have read, and I can't remember how reputable a resource it was, but that, that, you know, we use so much of our lung capacity, but then we push our training a bit farther, further, and we use a little more lung capacity. And this is that new tissue stretching out, whether or not I, I, I have no, oh, that's on right that. or not. Yeah. Right. I do not. Yeah. I, I, and what I said is bro science guys, <laughs> if you know what bro science means, what people just say, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like right for bro. But yeah. that may not be. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, trip. definitely not pro science. Yeah, yeah. not real science. Um, so I, I've I've experienced this pretty regularly. I always called it VO two cough, which is apparently a bad name for it, uh, since it's not necessarily tied to intensity. Um, not necessarily. Yeah, um, and this is something that I I've noticed that it usually lasts until I go to bed that evening, and the next day it's usually gone. But if it's like a if it's like a race after midday, that's where it would mm -hmm. last. You know, until I would go to bed that evening. And I think it's actually extremely common across the board. Well, yeah, and uh, it is. And I don't even know if people like Chris Froome or Alberto Contador, the people who have been dinged for using salbumetol and clenbuterol, mm -hmm. respectively, uh, are even asthma sufferers so much as they have exercise-induced bronchoconstriction of some sort, and they recognize that and they address it beforehand. Mm -hmm. Probably have to be an asthma sufferer to get a TUE. So One would hope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess. It's a, yeah, yeah, brave new world. So, but, And then one thing I didn't measure or I didn't mention is the fact that you can uh, tone tone a lot of this response down or avoid it entirely with a gentler warm-up. Mm. So 10 to 15 minutes of easy warm-up seemed to be a, a broad recommendation across these studies. You can also ask your friends to not attack so hard and have to chase them and crits. Yeah, so. that too. <laughs> or just be prepared for it. Yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely. I find this is more bro science or anecdotal. <laughs> okay, good. This is anecdotal, not bro science. Yes. But the more of these efforts I have during a season, the less often I get them. Yes. It's like that mm. first ride during like the year where I go mm. really hard, I get it. And then yep. by August, it's not happening anymore. I've noticed the same thing. Have yeah. you, Chad? I don't know if you have. Uh, yeah. No. But Chad doesn't even get this. He's just a mute. Oh, no, I get Gosh, it all the time. Chad. He just, just goes hard all the I know, time. He swallows bees <laughs> and just like keeps pedaling. It's not even hard for him. Jeez. This is impressive. Uh, let's go into Glenn's question. And I think this is going to be the last one that we do here. Um, on the podcast. If you're joining us live, stick with us and we can answer the questions that you've been submitting live. Uh, Glenn says the latest podcast highlighted a Nokia scale. As my wife is a nurse, she says this type of scale is junk. Uh, Nate, do you want to pull up exactly what model scale that is um, for the discussion that we'll have on this? He says, please give me some arguments as to why it is not because I already ordered one and I would hate to have to use it in secret for the rest of my life. <laughs> Um, so he's, he adds to this. He says, my wife is an RN. She believes that using electrical impedance to calculate such things as muscle bone, especially fat mass is inaccurate at best in a home version. 
she does not even think that it would be uh, that it would show trends over time due to variables such as hydration and remnants in the digestive system. She believes that the only way to determine body composition is through measurements done by better equipment in the laboratory and that the scale was a waste of money. <laughs> okay. So I, all of us have used different well, scales. Let me, let me break. Can I, like this, <laughs> yeah, I'm passionate about this. Let me first, it. just admittedly, impedance is an inferior method to, to the other. Yeah. Yeah, let me go through these. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Here is the best method is an autopsy. Yeah. Right. That 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 is the best. Okay. okay. We're not going to do. You only that. get one no, crack no, at we, that. Yeah, yeah. The next can't one. really. No no trends there. No reduce. Yeah. No trends. So if you want to prove your wife. Oh, it's a morbid morbid joke. Okay. Um, next one is uh, uh, DEXA is considered the gold standard, and that's yeah. the we've done that many times on the podcast. The dual X-ray scan, um, but that also will be influenced by hydration, mm. um, contents in your stomach. We've um, noticed this. Yes. Actually. Like, uh, and you can, you can fool the test by being like super hydrated because you're, uh, it, it will being more hydrated muscle will take that as lean mass, mm -hmm. um, during the test. So they, they say to always fast, like I think eight hours before it. Yeah. And that's why I was like, you nope. can't drink before. And Chad would drink like coffee before. I'm like, Chad, you can't do that. You're going to mess up the test. <laughs> yeah. So we just take that off. The... Chad was just getting lean. That's exactly. Like... <laughs> getting lean. Manufacturing leanness. Um, yeah. The other ones that are good are be like a bod pod or there's the, the water one, which I'm not completely familiar with. The bod pod. I don't know. I don't know how the water could tell you composition, though. I, I know I how it tell you body fat. I let's not, let's, I don't know about it. So let's just pretend it doesn't exist. The bod pod just gave an error when Keegan Swenson got into it. He's that lean. It just said error. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Yeah. So really, though, the DEX is probably the one that your wife is is talking about because of it's, it's, it is considered, like in studies, they use DEXs and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we've gone through, and with the Tanita scale, Tanita has two, the athlete and the the uh within the scale two modes you have two modes athlete and regular person mode and we have found that the regular person mode tracked very well for us three to our dexa results mm -hmm. and that the athlete mode tracked very well to fat caliper results and for those that are asking on there are a number of different tanita scales but one that i've used with this and i've been able to validate is the tanita bf680w is one that i've i've been using at home and it works great for that and the Nokia scale is the Nokia body cardio. <clears throat> okay. So what will happen is on these electrical impedance scales is you step on them and uh, they'll say something. And from day to day, because your hydration changes, and she's right, the contents contents in your stomach and the intestines changes, your body fat will be like, it'll say you've, you've gained or lost like two pounds of body fat within a day. Yeah. And even in that same day, you drink a whole bunch of water and you get on it and it's going to say it's different. Mm -hmm. But what... So because I, I'm thinking one test we have to do is make sure the Nokia lines up with the Tanita, Tanita because and I'll take that action item. But if those line up, at least for us, if they line up cl very closely mm -hmm. to the DEXA, like we've lost body fat on the Tanita scale and we've lost body fat on the DEXA yeah. and it's been the same rate of body fat. Yes. The nice thing about the Nokia, what it does is it puts it to your phone. And those little changes each day that happen, so it might say 16.1 one day, then 16.5, then 15.9, then 16.5. What, as long as I'm doing it first thing in the morning, so I'm fasted, and I go to the bathroom before it, so it's the same each time, is that it has on the app like a little trend line. And I can see, and we'll say for the month of August, you gained or lost, you know, one pound on average over that month. And yeah. that's what I'm interested in, yeah. right, is yeah. that trend and seeing that trend line go down. Yeah. So 
Um, I think weekly would be even more useful. Just totally. monitoring on monitoring it on a weekly basis. I've looked at uh, I looked back at the data that we had, and then I have all the printouts of all of my DEXA scans, and the Tanita scale was always within 0.2 of a percent from the rest. That from, carried for all three of us. All yeah. three of all us. All of our DEXAs, all of our our self caliper measurements, yep. uh, and and then all of the. Daily I seven, to need a I think seven different measurements that we took for DEXAs. We were all pretty thorough. And this is a <clears throat> N equals three study, right? right. Like we can't say this is for everybody, everybody, but how we did it too is we got on the Tanitas in the morning mm-hmm. and then we, without eating or drinking anything, we went directly to Post-void. the- Post-void. Yep. Yeah, the- uh, the, to, the The diagnostic imaging. center to, yep. get the, to get the scan done. Yep. And then- we would also do a caliper test at the same time, following the same protocol every time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it was amazing to see how closely they tracked. Yep. The DEXA gave you a ton more information, but if you're just interested in driving your composition in a specific direction, yep. then you get more. Or just you supplementing your DEXA measurements because you can't do a DEXA every day. You can't yeah. even do it every week, really. I wouldn't Exactly. It. It, it just, it's, it's for us, you, we don't, we're lucky. We don't need a doctor's note to do it. Yep. You can just go and do it and it's $50. Um, I really hope that, uh, prove your Glenn. This isn't great marital, uh, <laughs> but well, I mean, go get DEXAs every quarter. Yeah. Right. And if you can, depending where you live and then see if that tracks well with your scale. But, uh, I mean, uh, this is our experience. Yeah. Have your life wife listen to you. I, Glenn's wife. I love you. <laughs> Glad Glenn, you're trying to look out for Glenn. Glenn. Glenn's wife. I was exactly the same. I was like, these things are like what you go to at truck stops and you drop a, you drop a quarter in there and it mm-hmm. gives you some funny number. Like I, I did not think that they worked. Well, that's and, why we did this, right? That's why we, exactly we checked right. it. Yeah. And I was, yeah, I'm, I've been very impressed by it. So yeah, it, there is a gold standard for sure. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't glean useful data that actually parallels very closely to it. So, and as far I, as it's weight, hugely helpful for me, I'm, I'm counting my macros right now and I'm doing all of that to try to get down to race weight and to try to find the ideal supplementation plan for my training. Right. And it's been hugely helpful for me to just see even just basically it's been over just geez, three weeks now, but to see over three weeks to see already, you know, the trend analysis backing up what I'm doing with yeah. nutrition. As far as just helpful. pure weight. Uh, I haven't done this with the Nokia scale, but with the Tanita scale, we have a certified 25 kilogram weight to two grams. Mm-hmm. I put that on the Tanita scale and it said exactly Spot 25 on. kilograms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was nice. exactly right. So for as far as weight, I trust it, but that's a lot easier to do than body composition. Right. And right. two, when um, there could be, was it, what, what I'm looking for on these, on, on these scales is... Uh, precise results, not accurate. So kind of the same thing each Can you time. Describe what that, uh, the yeah. difference there. Accurate meaning like, um, the, the, the true right number and precise meaning the same type of measurement each time. It's repeatable. And, yeah, exactly. And the, so if I get on the scale twice, two times in a row, the same, uh, reading should come out mm-hmm. because what I want to do is over time to see those numbers go down and you have to, in these scales, you put in your age and your height mm-hmm. and that it takes from like a table of you know, average ranges of things for people. And I'm not an average body size for my height. And it still um, works though. Well, yeah. And, but I'm, it, maybe it would be even better, better for somebody else. What I'm just saying is I'm looking at the trend, not the, I'm not taking the data. Like this is exactly it. I take the DEXA as that's my it. But even the DEXA has a pretty big, 
uh, range of error if you look it up on the internet. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and I think it goes without saying that you, you know, you don't have socks and don't have clothes on period. I even take my watch off. I don't put, you know, have anything on to try to make sure that I don't have any distraction with it too. So, and I just measure at the same time every day, same circumstances. So those things can help. Uh, cool. I guess that covers it for the live or for the podcast here. If you're with us live, stick with us, uh, stay tuned for that special episode next week and check out the ask a cycling coach podcast, Facebook group for that special uh, announcement in terms of the special guest, I should say for the live podcast that we'll be doing from Interbike next week. Thanks for joining us. If you want to learn more about Trainer Road, uh, we got some exciting things coming down the pipe. Please check it out at trainerroad.com. If you want to submit your question to the podcast, you can do so at trainerroad.com slash podcast. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.